0: I love that story. And Lord willing, tonight, many were invited. Who will come? I don't know. We hope many. But to hear a brief 30, 40-minute summary of the biblical story. Continue to pray that God will lead people our way this night. We are always, when we look at God's word on holy ground, when we particularly talk about the cross of Jesus, That is especially the case. And in Matthew 16 beginning with verse 21 and reading to the end of the chapter, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, because we know the end of the story, because we know how the life of Jesus unfolds, sometimes we may not be sensitive to when certain things were revealed. I want you to think, Where has there been a clear statement of the cross in Matthew before this? There have been many allusions to what might be coming. For example, we've seen things like Matthew 19 where he says the bridegroom will be taken away from them. We have seen events that foreshadow the cross, like the execution of John the Baptist. You see allusions, you see historical foreshadowing, but you don't find a specific statement of the cross or the death of Jesus before this point. Jesus has brought them to the point where they know that he's Christ, where they know that he's the Messiah. He has brought them to that point. And then he gave them the unusual instruction in verse 20, go and and don't go and tell anyone this news. Why? Why not tell the news that Jesus is the Messiah? It's a temporary injunction. Because as of yet, they don't understand what the Messiah involves as will be demonstrated in this text. Will be very well demonstrated this text. From that time, the statement begins in verse 21. From that time, now Jesus begins to give specific indications of what it means to be the Messiah. They have confessed Him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And now He tells them what that means is that He must go to Jerusalem the city, which is proclaimed as the holy city in Isaiah 52 verse 1 and multitudes of other passages throughout the Bible, will be the center of opposition to the promised Messiah. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Now often in the Gospel of Matthew, one of these groups will be mentioned or two of these groups will be mentioned I believe the only time, and I may be wrong about this, I believe the only time that all three of these groups are mentioned together again in the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew 27 in verse 41. In that same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying... They are united in their hatred, in their mockery, in their opposition to Jesus. They are united in that. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be rejected And but rains on the third day. Peter, who has the great insight to say, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, is bold now to take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him. He rebukes Jesus. Peter's making the same kind of mistakes the Pharisees are making to think that Jesus' words are subject to our approval. If he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, you better listen and you better learn and not object. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and said, "God forbid, you, Lord, this will never happen to you. This event is not recorded. Peter's objection not recorded at all in Luke. In Mark, we read that he rebuked Jesus, but we don't read the very words he said here." We find the words that Peter said. Lord this will never happen to you. He emphasized those passages in the Old Testament. That talked of the Messiah as a reigning king. And not passages that emphasized him as a suffering servant. They selectively read the Old Testament. And didn't see all the clues that were there about a suffering messiah and as far as we have discovered to this day there is no clear pre-christian record of any segment of judaism which expected the messiah to be a suffering servant and Peter doesn't share that. The apostles don't share that. And they said, may it never be, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says, the strongest one word rebuke he ever gave to anyone. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your interests on man's things. And not God's things. Get behind me, Satan. Same words Jesus uttered to the devil in Matthew 4 and verse 10. And I really think these words here help us to understand that. You remember in context that the devil had brought Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, All these I will give you will fall down and worship me and Jesus says get behind me Satan it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only quoting from Deuteronomy 6 Satan was promising Jesus all the kingdoms of the world without the cross in the book of Matthew It is no accident that the last scene is on a high mountain and Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Everything that Satan promised and more is given to the Savior at the end of the book but it comes through the way of rejection and suffering and crucifixion. Jesus' words about his destiny have application to our lives. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. Beside deny yourself, I have the verses. And they're from Matthew 26, verse 34, verse 75. Both of these passages present Peter denying Christ. Same word. And they present to us the possibilities of life. We can deny Christ... Or we can deny self. If anyone wishes. To come after me. Just deny himself And take up his cross. And follow me. Josephus said. That during the Jewish wars, it was so common to see Jews who were crucified that it seemed as if they would run out of trees on which to hang them on. They knew what it meant to see a person carry his cross. It was a one-way journey. There was no return ticket. You were going to your own execution. If any man, not preacher, not elder, not limited to any gender, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. And whoever wishes. Whoever wishes. To save his life. Will lose it. And whoever loses his life. For my sake. Shall find it. For what is a man profit. If he gains the whole world. And loses his soul. And what will a man give. In exchange for his soul. Now. The word soul in most of your translations in verse 26, the word soul in most of your translations is the same word translated life in verse 25. It's the same Greek word. So when Jesus talks about saving your life and losing your life in verse 25, he is using the same phrase when you forfeit your soul or give in exchange for your soul. Well, it's hard to know the best way to translate that. Is it life? Is it soul? Is it himself? All of those read it and think about it and try to fit those words into it and, and see what the best sense is you can get of it. What Whoever wishes to save his life we will lose it. Now there is a statement that is in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke that is not in the gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew in Mark 8 verse 38 the Bible says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. The point that I'm making, this may in vision, a circumstance where the believer was called up and put on trial for his faith and the way to lose life is to preserve it at all costs. It is easy to stand up here and say that. Have any of those here in this world? Justin Martyr received that name because he was killed for his faith, And he was actually begging as he was being taken to death. As he knew he was on the road to execution begging Christians don't intervene. I want to give my life for Him who gave His life for me.
1: Whoever wishes
0: to save His life will lose it. Whoever wishes Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All of this is built on the premise that Jesus will be raised. He will be raised from the dead. He will come again, as verse 27 states. And that those who follow him faithfully will be blessed with life that is beyond anything this world has to offer. Blessed with life beyond anything this world has to offer. Recently, writing someone I was in college with that had cancer, this statement I am confident. God will heal me. Whether in this life or in the next. Whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profiting? He gains the whole world and loses his life, himself, his soul. What do we have that equals that in value? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? A comedian who was before my time, before most of your time. Some of you will remember him. Did this skit. He was apparently very tight with money. And there is this skit where a robber comes to him with a gun and says, Your money or your life? He doesn't answer. And he says, Did you hear me? I said... Your money or your life. He said, I know. I'm thinking about it. Now all of us recognize the foolishness of that. What good does your money do you if you're not alive? And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul, loses his life. What do you have to give in exchange for that? The Son of Man will come with the glory of his Father. His holy angels. The text tells us and he will render to everyone according to their deeds and he said, truly I say to you that some of you standing here will not pay death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You can make, there have been all kinds of possibilities suggested for what verse 28 means. And you can make some good suggestions right here in context. Is the transfiguration a fulfillment of that? Is Acts 2 a fulfillment of that? Is the destruction of Jerusalem a fulfillment of that? But we're not going to get into all of that. But it does show us ultimately that this one who is going to be rejected and killed will be raised and come in glory. And the disciples will witness this. Now... One of the things this text teaches us is the absolute, the absolute necessity of the death of Jesus. From that time, verse 21 says... From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He must suffer many things. It is a necessity it is a necessity from the standpoint of the fulfillment of all of the Scripture. In Matthew 26, in Matthew 26 in verse 54, the Bible there, uh, as Jesus was being arrested, He states, how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? When Jesus was talking to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus in Luke 24 in verse 26, was it not necessary? necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. The disciples don't grasp the necessity of the cross at this moment and Peter rebukes him. Peter probably speaking for all the rest too when he does that. They don't grasp the absolute necessity of the cross of Christ But Jesus said there is no other way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The way of salvation will be through the cross of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm in a discussion and somebody makes a statement like this. Well, and sometimes it's stated pretty dogmatically. We know God could have saved us anyway, but he just chose to save us through the cross of Christ, through the cross of Esmeralda. Really? We know God could have saved us through other ways, Where do you get the information to assert that? Because we can't know God except by how He's revealed Himself in Scripture. Where does God say that? Where does He say that? What Jesus said is that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised. And when he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. There was no alternate plan. There was no other path. If you were going to be saved, if I was going to be saved, it is through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And do you realize that when Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of the cross, this one who spoke earlier of what the Father in heaven revealed to him. This one who spoke so profoundly earlier when he said, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he's a mouthpiece for Satan. Do you realize that if Peter would have talked his way out of the cross, that Peter and all of us would be lost for an eternity Get out of me, you're, you're setting your mind on man's interest and not God's. But I want to tell you. And I tell you what. You're doing. This is implications for us. After speaking of the grace of God, which brings salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, He speaks to me of the cross as a picture of discipleship. There is nothing inconsistent between the grace of God displayed in the cross and the demand that we take up our cross and follow Him. Those are uttered in the same breath. Those are uttered in the same breath in this text. And they are uttered in the same breath in other texts. For example, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, a passage that ties to this image. If you want to turn to Galatians 2, let me also point out something that I don't think I really realized before this past week. Do you realize that Jesus uses the cross as a picture of discipleship for us before He specifically mentions the cross as the way He would die? He shows that He will be killed, but does not mention the cross specifically yet. But if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Paul uses this same kind of language in Galatians 2 in verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes to the law then Christ died needlessly. The connection there between the grace revealed in the death of Christ and the call for us no longer to live but to crucify self
2: and to live as he asked us to live.
0: In the midst of our affluence, in the midst of our peace, in the midst of our blessings, we must be reminded that we serve a crucified Savior. A Savior that went about doing good and was rejected and spit upon and murdered in the most degrading of all ways. That demonstration of the grace and mercy of God is beyond our ability to express. And its demands on our life are also profound. The song that Micah led us in a moment ago, Isaac Watts wrote as far as I could find in 1707. Contemplate these words again. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my greatest gain I count but loss and poor content on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my Lord and all the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His hand, His head, His hands, His feet sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose, so rich a crown. In light of all God's mercy. In God's grace. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing. So divine. Demands my life. My soul. My all. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A song written by Thomas Shepard in 1693, a song that many of us would be familiar with Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Obviously, Jesus, by his death, accomplished things that we could never accomplish via ours. Don't misunderstand those words, but simply. Using the words of this passage as a call to discipleship.
2: But I would tell you, too, it
0: may be, it may be that in losing our lives, we find our life. Not only in the ultimate sense of the resurrection. Eternal life, which is the greatest sense of that passage. Not minimizing that. But maybe also, that passage is telling us that the real way to find life is not to be self-absorbed. But to lose ourselves for His sake. As John Samus wrote in 1887 in his song, Trust and Obey, in the last verse. But we can never prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, and for them who will trust and obey That's the real meaning to life here. Perhaps that's hinted at, but certainly we need another reminder. We serve a crucified Savior and we serve a resurrected Savior. The disciples hear these words that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, He's going to be rejected, and He's going to be killed, and the third day He's going to be raised. And they will continually be grief-stricken at those words. Look at Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, in verse 22 and 23, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. I understand that. That the death comes before the resurrection. I understand that. Their grief. But we cannot. We cannot bear our cross if we don't have hope of a Lord who is raised from the dead. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you could gain the whole world and in the process, lose your life, your soul, yourself, and be eternally lost, You have made the worst trade that could be imagined. We're never going to obtain that. What will you give in exchange for life? Each day that passes, each year that passes is a reminder that our lives are quickly slipping through our fingers. And that this world, for those who have eyes of faith, this world is simply preparation for a greater world that our resurrected Lord has prepared for us joys that will never end. A place where we will never grow old. He has prepared for us joys that are beyond our description. Very vaguely defined or described in Scripture. But you know... I trust him to fulfill his word. I trust him to do what he said. I trust that the life that awaits us is greater than anything we could lose here. One man in the 1950s, Who did something extremely dangerous, which he knew could cost him his life
2: in service to God,
0: and did cost it his life, said, "He is no fool." who gives what he cannot hold on to and cannot keep. Today, where he has. One is no fool to give up this life and everything involved with it. To receive eternal life. If we lose the whole world. And gain our soul. Gain our life. What will it profit you <coughs> to gain the whole world and lose yourself?
3: Right. If you're not right in right.
0: God, maybe you need to repent and be baptized from the ship's of sins. Maybe you need to repent and ask the prayers of others. But let us talk to you. Let us try to help. Because we are trying to point people to a resurrected Savior who can need your eternal life and we invite you.
4: Been crucified with Christ my Lord, I am dead to sin through his precious blood. I've been raised to life in God sacrifice by faith not guilty but justified Please be seated.
3: I'm before you this morning because I need to confess sin and beg your forgiveness. In fact, I'm speaking for both Leanne. And me in this matter. The passages on the screen behind me are just a few of the many that are recorded in the Bible on the subject of forgiveness and are pertinent to what I will share. Years ago we considered Chris and Debbie Whitsitt as good friends, close friends, Very possibly best friends. We and our family spent time together in Bible studies and singings, FC camp, game nights, ski trips, attending plays, eating at McDonald's. But for Leanne and myself there were multiple instances a number of years ago that were hurtful, and that challenged our relationship with Chris and Debbie from a trust perspective. We felt and convinced ourselves that Chris and Debbie were working against us. Leanne made a few attempts to address her differences, but there was no resolution. And I wish I could say the same, but rather than working to resolve these issues, I did nothing. No, that's not true. I let bitterness and anger and resentment build in my heart toward Chris and Debbie, my friends, and more than that, my brother and sister in Christ. I began to, as Romans one twenty-nine describes it, develop an evil-mindedness that put the worst construction on most everything I witnessed in Chris and Debbie. Rather than leaving my gift at the altar and working to be reconciled with Chris and Debbie, I distanced myself from them and wrongfully judged myself as superior. In doing so, I failed first to glorify God. I also failed to get the log out of my own eye and then fell short in helping them see a potential speck in their eyes. I tried to be pleasant when forced to be around Chris and Debbie and convinced myself that this peace faking was an acceptable response to this conflict. Not once did I stop to consider how impactful my actions were to Chris and Debbie. How hurtful how damaging, how discouraging I was being, nor did I count the cost of my example on the body of believers here at Avon. As an elder, a shepherd of God's people, I did not show the actions and attitudes of Jesus in dealing with this conflict. I did not forgive as the Lord has forgiven me. Additionally, I have not been the example that I need to be to this flock. Ultimately, and most importantly, I have not honored God in the way that I have behaved toward Chris and Debbie. For all of this, I'm asking forgiveness and willing to accept whatever consequences may come from my sins. Thankfully, in the last few weeks, a couple of you took the initiative to encourage me To reconcile with Chris and Debbie. You have been instrumental in helping me see my part in this conflict and to recognize my need to work proactively to restore love and unity in this relationship. And I thank you, Mindy, and I thank you, Bob. After two sessions together, first with Chris and myself and then with Chris and Debbie and Leanne and myself. We've been able to work through most of the issues that have been a stumbling block to Leanne and to me. We're also thankful to Brad Pettis in being a godly negotiator during these sessions to the desired God-honoring end. As a result, Leanne and I are resolved to reconcile fully With Chris and Debbie realizing that it will take time to repair the hurt that we have caused them and to establish trust with them once again but most of all we want to thank God for his mercy his long suffering and his forgiveness all of which we are so undeserving of We pray that we learn from this in ways that are transforming in our lives and beneficial to those around us. And again, we humbly pray for forgiveness from Chris and Debbie and from all of you and from God. As Ryan read, I pray that God, who began a good work in us, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus.
2: Debbie wanted me to make it clear that I'm speaking for her as well. She says, one of the grandkids in the back. In one of our conversations with several different people while working on this issue, a good friend said to Debbie and me, said, you guys are very assertive. Ambitious and and driven to accomplish your goals. But because of that, you have plowed through barriers and stepped on toes. We acknowledge this and recognize that we have done this to others, but especially to John and Leanne. We admit this. And repent and apologize and ask for your forgiveness and from all of you and from God. This combination of our assertiveness and I will call it aggressiveness, this attitude, along with this conflict with John and Leanne, has no doubt come out in conversations with some of you specifically not giving John and Leanne the benefit of the doubt, but instead saying things that could cause others to think poorly of them, or conveying a lack of submission to John and the elders in general. I know that I addressed this to you back in April, but felt that it was appropriate to say this again to apply it specifically to this relationship and this situation, and to include Debbie in this confession. We admit these things and repent and apologize to all of you and ask for your forgiveness and for God to forgive us. We also recognize that some of our attempts to be helpful have instead, because of our harshness, been hurtful. Leanne especially felt this from us, and we acknowledge this, and want to ask her specifically for forgiveness. Debbie and I are working on these things and ask for your help as well. Please let us know if you see these attitudes or actions or even a hint of these things. So again, we ask all of you, especially John and Leanne, forgive us and especially God. John and Leanne, we forgive you as well for the things that you have asked and for things that you have not asked. And we, too, resolve fully to fully reconcile our relationship with you guys. Thank you.
5: we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie we do not practice the truth for who walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say that we have no sin We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a wonderful day. This is a day of rejoicing. The tears I cry are tears of joy. Because people I love are reconciled. Thank you. Amen. How about an amen, brethren?
2: Amen. Amen.
5: Brad's going to come and lead us in a closing prayer. God bless you both. All of you. Debbie, too.
1: Let's go to God in prayer. Holy God, we, we approach your throne on behalf of John and Chris today. These two citizens of your kingdom, your great kingdom, have come confessing transgressions of your royal law to love one another just as you loved us. These two brothers uh, have been given the opportunity to serve this congregation, to shepherd these souls. And at times they chose instead to serve their own interests in pride and conceit. And instead of overcoming evil with good, they've been overcome with evil. And we reflect, God, the truth of that in every one of our lives. God, you've, you've seen this. You've observed this from your royal throne in heaven. And we know that you're grieved to see such discord being sown. And to see the harvest of thorns and briars as we bite and devour one another. But instead of swiftly condemning these men, you've been slow to act. Not as some count slowness, but rather slow to anger, slow to wrath. Patiently waiting for this moment when they would recognize their failures to one another and to you and repent of their sin. God, we thank you so much for their humble hearts. And while each of these brothers has wronged each other, they choose today to release each other of the debt that they owe. And they choose to deny themselves just as Christ did, and take up their cross and cancel that debt. So God, I pray this morning that you take out of them their calloused hearts toward one another and replace it with a soft and tender heart toward each other. And that you put your spirit in them, a spirit of forgiveness, love, and compassion, just like the one you put in Joseph who when his brothers were so afraid that he would hold a grudge against them they threw themselves down before him and said we are your slaves please forgive the sins and all the wrong that we've committed against you and Joseph said don't be afraid am I in the place of God you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So God, we ask that you make this moment heavy on each one of our hearts, that we would search and look for anything that we might have or that, against one another or that someone might have against us. And that we take this new example from John and Chris and Lee and Debbie. And that we reconcile. We forgive. Even though the accuser may roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. But you God know none. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your kindness and your patience toward John, Chris, Lee, and Debbie, and toward each one of us. May we follow their example and pick up our cross and cancel the debts that we owe one another because such a great debt has been canceled on our behalf. We praise you, God, and lift your your name on high You are worthy of all praise and all honor. And your love transcends anything we can understand that you would give your only son for us. Thank you, God, for this time, for these men, and for this congregation. May we be pleasing in your sight. Be with us as we separate at this time and help us to humble ourselves and consider Soberly, all the things you've done to make us right with you and continue to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.